we should pray that God would just wreck you. Just absolutely wreck you. And so it's appropriate that uh, we sing that song today because of where we're at. Because there are so many individuals in our world, and even some that attend church regularly, that refuse, and I, I use this word sort of as just general jargon, to allow God to tear them down as if we allow God to do anything, right? I mean, really, I mean, yes, God, you know, we, I'm going to allow you to come into this place. I, I don't think God really needs an invitation. But there really are individuals that just fight, just fight tooth and nail. God, and you can tell it when they're working on it. You can tell it. This morning's message is entitled Holding On to Sin, and we're going to finish out chapter 9, and I'm going to do this one a little bit different than what we have done. Uh, I'm not going to walk through every single, st- uh, every single verse today. I'm really going to focus on just sections, because uh, the truth is, is that uh, this verse, these verses that we're going to talk about, sort of extrapolate what we've already, what we've already discussed. I'm going to explain a few things. But I really want to focus in on verses 20 and 21. I think that those are the pivotal verses. And I honestly believe, and, and, and there are probably tons of commentators who would disagree with me here. There are tons of people who probably disagree with me. But I, I think verses 20 and 21 are, are almost a theme, the theme of the tribulation. That God is allowing orchestrating this tribulation on the earth, one, in judgment of sin, but two, to provoke people to believe. And that is one of the main reasons why I believe that there is not going to be a rapture before the tribulation. And the reason is, is because of the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not just to worship. That is a pivotal work of the church to worship the the true and only God. But another purpose of the church is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ has come in the flesh, that he has come for sinners, that he has died for sinners, and that we are called to repent and believe, and that we are there to proclaim. And my thought is, if all the church is taken away during the tribulation, then these verses here, verses 20 through 21, that who's going to be left to explain what God is doing? Because it is not a normal thing for unbelievers just to randomly pick up the Bible and start reading. It does happen. It does happen, and people are saved by picking up the Bible in hotel rooms at, you know, as sort of a last resort, and they go through that Gideon-placed Bible, and they turn to John, or they turn to Revelation, and that they are saved. I absolutely believe in the power of God's Word and the power of the gospel therein in order to save people. I believe that. But what we see in Scripture is that the most common means by which people are, are learning the gospel and coming to faith in Christ is through the faithful proclamation of the church. And if you remove the church from the scene, and when this tribulation is raining down on them, how are they going to see that this is justice being rained down on them by a holy God? 
And so I think verses 20 through 21 are sort of a theme of what's going to happen. So I want to pray. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction, and then we're going to read the scripture as I kind of preach and apply. So let's uh, join together in prayer. Father in heaven, uh, we come before you this morning and we are undone, uh, undone by our sin, undone by our own um, failings, Lord, undone by our apathy and our complacency. Uh, and Lord, I, I'm, I will personally just admit that uh, if it were not for the power of, of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, that uh, I would not be able to carry on. And I know that that's true for all believers, even if we don't readily recognize it. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us this morning and that we would see the power of your work being accomplished through these passages and that we would relate that to our own lives and that we would see your hand working right now. Father, I pray that you would slay us if that's what's needed. I pray that you would tear us all the way down to the very bone so that you would add fresh meat, a new heart, new eyes to see you, new ears to hear you. Father, I pray that you would remake us into the image of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. In one of my favorite books as a child, and I've not read it since I was a child, but it left a deep impression on me, um, Where the Red Fern Grows. How many of you all have read that book? Any of you all? It's an amazing, amazing story. And uh, it kind of resonated with me because, you know, as a kid around the age of the main character, I was doing some of these things. Now, I wasn't a coon hunter, and that's kind of what, that's, that's sort of, what's happening in the book. It's not really what the book is about, but it's sort of what kind of pushes the story forward. Um, but uh, I, I, was, I, I kind of resonated with this young man, even though it was several years before. I mean, we were in different time frames and all that stuff, but, but I, I, I just love this adventure that this young man was going on. Well, the young man's name, if, you, if you're not aware of the story, his name is Billy Coleman. And in the story, he acquires uh, two... Redbone Coonhounds, and uh, this this story resonates even more now because we have a coonhound in our house, and so I can kind of see this play out. And um, that he named them Old Dan and Little Ann, and I love that. And as I had to kind of go back over the story uh, as I was developing the message uh, for this morning because I had forgotten a lot of the pieces of it. But I, I when as soon as I read this part, I remembered that that scene in the book where. Where, where Billy's coming home with his new coonhounds, and they're not trained or anything. He doesn't even have a name for them, and he passes by this tree that has a heart carved into it, and it, and it has Dan and Ann, so, you know, two star-crossed lovers carve their name into a tree. And he's like, well, those are good names for the dogs, and so it's old Dan and little Ann. And I just love that. I wish that I had remembered that when we got our coonhound, and I might have tried to convince my youngest son with candy and money to name him Old Dan. But his name is Scooby, so whatever. <laughs> Eventually, these two hounds become famous in the area because their ability to tree raccoons. 
And so, I mean, the kid's just famous with these two dogs. I mean, they're just absolutely uh, going to town and collecting all these raccoons. And I won't tell you the whole story because it is a great story. And if you've got time to read it, I, I just encourage you to read it if you haven't. Uh, but before these coon hounds could, could tree the coons, they had to be trained. And so he had to go to his grandfather and said, I, I need a raccoon fur. I need raccoon pelt to be able to train this dog. And so they came up with this, this trap, this really clever trap to, to catch them a raccoon. And basically what it is, is they take a, a, a hollow log or a box, a, a wooden box of some sort, and there's a little hole in it, and they place a shiny object in the bottom of it, something that gleams when the light hits it. And then when a raccoon, because raccoons are very curious things, if you've left your trash can just slightly open overnight, you know how curious they are, right? They will find a way in there. Um, and so they're, they're curious about these shiny objects. So they'll reach their little paw in that hole, grab that shiny object, pull it out, and run off with it. Well, in this trap, what they do is they nail nails, long like roofing nails, into the hole at an angle pointed in so that when the raccoon reaches in to get the shiny object, the only way he can get out of the trap and not you know, hurt his little paw on the, on the nails is he's got to let go of the shiny object. And then the shiny object falls back in the hole and you know, then we start the whole process over again. So what does the raccoon do? He grabs a hold of the shiny object and he doesn't let go. He just kind of hangs there in this trap because he can't pull his paw out without hurting himself, but he can't let go of this shiny object, right? So he just waits for his demise because then comes Billy and the grandfather. They kill the raccoon. They skin the raccoon, and now they train these wonderful dogs to be able to go and hunt raccoons. And I just love that story. I, th I think that's just a great story. I kind of want to do it. You know, just to, just to see what would happen there. That resonated with me. I, it was the first, the first picture that came to mind, which says something about me, I think, when I read this passage for today, especially the verses 20 through 21, is that sin is that bright, shiny object. That's what it is. Sin is a bright, shiny object. It traps us. It ensnares us, and we know that it is death to us, but we're still not willing to let it go. We just won't. We won't let it go, especially before Christ, right? In fact, before Christ, we may not even know or be able to grapple with the fact that sin is deadly, that it is death to us. Now, I do believe that even unbelievers are created with a sense about them, a conscious about them, to know the difference between right and wrong and to know what the presence of sin is. I believe you do not have to be a Christian to know that evil exists. I believe that we are created with that knowledge knowing that evil exists and that sin exists, yet we still cling to that bright, shiny object because we don't let it go. And the truth is, is that some, even in the church, still are not willing to let go of that bright, shiny object. Now, here's the thing. Outside of Christ, you are not able to let go of that bright, shiny object. It just is what it is. 
Sin is what it is to the unbeliever, but to the Christian, you are able to uh, let go of that bright, shiny object. You are able to repent. You are able to turn from your sin. You are able to turn to Christ. Yet still, some of us choose to hang on to that bright, shiny object. The problem is that sin, that shiny object, never lives up to its promised reward. I mean, what happens if that raccoon gets that shiny object out of there? It's not like an old cheeseburger. It's not like that progressive commercial. You know those raccoons are in a trash can, right? And it says, mmm, bread. Smell that. Smells like mango and burnt hair. Come smell this, right? They had to be male raccoons. They had to be, because only males would have another male come and sniff something so horrible as mango and burnt hair. But I know if it had been two little boys and not raccoons, you know, if it was like Logan and Jackson, Jackson say, this really stinks, Logan, come smell it, right? Just big, take a big huff. You know exactly what I mean. Kristen, right? Okay, all right. Anyone who's got little boys. Now, Kata, she'd be like, no, let me draw a picture of horses, <laughs> right? Because that's what she does, right? But the boys would be sniffing that stuff. But sin never lives up to what it's promised. It just doesn't. It promises you the world, and it delivers on none of it. It's just what sin is. It's a lie. You will always leave disappointed with sin. And you know exactly what I mean. I don't have to have you all call out your sin, but right now you, you could likely, if I asked you, to think of sin in your life, something that even maybe it was before you became a Christian that you were prone to do, okay, before you were a believer, and, and you were apt to do, you were apt to participate in that sin, and you participated in that sin because you believed that the outcome would be better if you participated in it than if you refrained from participating in it. But then after you commit the sin, when you walk away, you realize, well, that wasn't near as fun as I thought it was going to be. And you leave disappointed. And you might very well lose your hide. One of the purposes of these judgments that we're going to see in this tribulation that John is describing to us is that it's providing, it is God providing vengeance and retribution against a sinful world. It is the judgment. I have made the claim, and I believe it, even as I continue to read through this, I don't see anything that, that changes my mind, that we are currently living in this tribulation. I believe that's what we are enduring at this time. And that much of what we see, the pain and the heartache and the troubles and the challenges and all those sorts of things that we see, is judgment on a sinful world. Last night I posted, I think it was yesterday, I posted a picture of hot dogs. Some of you all seen it, and I don't want to remind you, but it was a package of what normally is Oscar Mayer hot dogs, but this said they were called Halloweeners for Halloween, and they were black. They were black hot dogs, and the reason they were black was because they had black licorice mixed in with them. So it was hot dogs and black licorice, licorice mixed together. And I stole that from Twitter because I just thought if I'm repulsed, I want to share the repulsion to everybody. But the person that shared that, all she said in the statement above it, is that God has abandoned us. By the, and these hot dogs are evidence of that. And I have to somewhat agree with that, right? 
Now, here's the thing. The truth is, though, is that God has not abandoned us. Even though there are Halloweeners out there mixed with black licorice, God has not abandoned us. No matter how challenging and difficult and troublesome and painful life is, God has not abandoned us. He has not abandoned any of us. He is still present. He is still working. But the judgment is evident. And the saints' prayers are being answered. However, there is also another purpose to these this tribulation, and that is so that unbelievers will turn from their sin, letting go of their transgressions, and turn to Christ. And so if you remember uh, in Exodus, when the judgments, when the, when the plagues were coming down on Egypt, that those plagues were a judgment against the sin of Egypt for enslaving God's people. That's what they were. These plagues were not just plagues, they were, they were judgments raining down. And eventually it caused the Egyptian, it took a while, but eventually it caused the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh, to relent and allow God's people to go. Now, it didn't last long. He chased after him after that, and then he got drowned. <laughs> but the truth is, is that all of these are reminiscent of those plagues in Exodus. But these judgments are intended, in some sense, to cause people to turn Christ. How many individuals who come to Christ, when you read the stories, you know, you read their testimonies, and they say, I hit rock bottom. It's like God allowed me to hit rock bottom. Folks, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I don't believe God allowed you to do anything. I think God sent you straight to rock bottom. He made you feel the pain and the trouble of rock bottom so that you know that He is the only one to be able to pull you out of that. Now, it is no less a miracle when God saves somebody out of that rock bottomness, whatever that sin and wretchedness you are experiencing. It's no less a miracle for somebody to be saved out of that than it is for somebody to be saved out of, you know, when they're nine years old and they haven't even had an opportunity to experience the sins of the world, the majority of the sins of the world. It's no less a miracle in any case. But what we see evidence, especially in adults who come to salvation, is that sometimes God just has to slay us. He just has to tear us down. So let's dive into the sixth trumpet, beginning in verse 12. John writes, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Now, in the first woe, in the, in the fifth trumpet, we realize that all these locusts were released, and we talked about how all of these this was this, these were demons that were, that were coming through and that they were basically insulting or influencing all the unbelievers. And we saw that believers were protected because a demon cannot cohabitate with the Holy Spirit. Well, John's going to continue this. This vision is going to continue, but with different creatures this time. And so it says, The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now, what we're going to see is this is a continuation on this theme that demonic forces are at work. They are at work, and they can harm us. They can harm us spiritually. They can harm us physically. They can invoke pain and trouble on individuals. It's amazing how many people in the world do not believe in demons. They are happy to believe in angels, but they have no care in the world about demons. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe in Satan. They don't believe in anything like that. But the scripture is very clear, is that demonic forces are at play. They are at play. And while they may not be able to physically influence a believer, they can impact your life. But in this case, what we're seeing is that they are sent out specifically to influence unbelievers, those who have not been marked by the seal of God through the Holy Spirit. And so it says, the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So it's kind of this temple-esque picture that we have here, and that the saints' prayers have risen up to God. It's a wonderful aroma before the Lord in this incense uh, type manifestation. And part of that, those prayers are basically, God, rain down your judgment on these unbelievers. So make this happen. And so God is finally answering these prayers and saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, this voice before the altar of God says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now I'm going to just be just straight up with you. I did not know personally where to go with this, okay? Here are the two things that I gathered from this. Is Number one, that if you remember that God told these other angels that were at the four corners of the earth to hold back, right? And so they were at the four corners of the earth. Well, these four angels are at the, at the Euphrates. These four angels are, are, at the, are bound at the great river Euphrates. And so it's a different location. We also know that the Euphrates is related to the Garden of Eden. We see that all the way back in the Old Testament. And so, but I really didn't know where to go with this, okay? It sounded as if these were different uh, entities, but I wasn't 100% sure, so I, I do what I do, and I got into my commentaries, and I started reading what's going on here. Now, the truth is, is that all the commentators kind of disagree on what's happening, okay? What it looks like, and I'm going to take the words of Tom Schreiner from his commentary, because I think that it makes the most sense, is that he suggests that what is happening is that this is a picture of when these invading armies came over from the Euphrates to wreak, wreak havoc against Rome. All right, So there were two different periods. I think one of them was around 53 B.C., another was around 65 A.D., and these invading armies came over the Euphrates into, uh, into, in, into the area of Rome and basically were, tr- were very destructive. Okay? And that it's kind of a picture of that. But that's really not neither here nor there. The point of this is this, is that now these, these angels, or they could be demons, whatever they might be, they are now releasing the horde, if you will. Okay? You all know that one phrase, like, release the kraken. Well, that's kind of what's happening here. Okay, Release the horde, and they are being released. But what I want you to notice is verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared, that's a key, for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now it is 
almost guaranteed that a third of mankind means that it, it's a it's a sort of a just a symbolic number, okay? That there's not literally going to be a third of mankind that are going to disappear from the planet, that are going to die, okay, from this. It's probably a a symbolic number, meaning a lot. There are a lot of individuals that are going to be judged and they are going to die from what is getting ready to happen. And also, when it says the hour, the day, and the month, that's also sort of a symbolic, symbolic uh, phrase. But what's happening here that I want you to see is this, is that what is happening in the tribulation is not something that God planned after the fact. That's not what's happening here. This has been planned before the foundations of the earth. The tribulation that is occurring, that we are in, that we are experiencing, is not an unknown to God. God's hand is on every bit of this. God is directing it. God is allowing it, if you will. God is orchestrating it. God has ordained this to occur. Now, if we're right, and what we're getting ready to see is a horde of demons, in fact, 200 million all right, another symbolic number, but meaning a lot, almost a great multitude that can't be counted. If that is true, if that's really what's happening here, what we see is that God is using evil forces in order to judge mankind. Now, I don't know about you, and this may sound a little bit odd, but I'm just going to admit to you this, is that that is refreshing to me. It is refreshing to me that God would use evil in order to judge mankind and this is why it means that evil is not out of God's hands meaning that God is in control of everything it means that evil is not allowed to just run rampant without any without any type of barrier or without any type of restraint God is in control of every bit of this just as we see in Job where Satan could do no more than what God allowed him to do we see the same thing here. These demons are not al allowed to do anything that God is not allowing them to do in judgment of mankind. Now, that is not, I don't mean to say that God is morally culpable for sin. I don't mean that God is morally culpable for the actions of the demons and of Satan. What I mean is, is that God is in control of all of history. This is his plan. To judge mankind. In a sense, and I, kind of, I think it's sort of poetic in a sort of a morbid sense. Is that God is judging man's sin by, in a sense, the embodiment of sin. By these demons. By Satan. Allowing him to wreak havoc upon the world. And so that's what's happening here, is that these forces are being unleashed upon mankind, but they are only going to impact those who are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. Let's keep on going and look at the plagues of judgment now from verses 16 through 19. It says, The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I believe that's about 200 million, if my math is correct. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates of color of fire and sapphire and, and of sulfur 
And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and the smoke and the sulfur came out of their mouths. Now, what does that mean when he's talking about it? By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. So, what's the description of the horses mean? there, There are some that would try to break this down individually and try to pull it apart and say, well, the sapphire means this, and the breastplates mean this, and the, the heads of the lion, the, the heads of lions mean this. I, I don't think that that really matters. I think what they what is meant to be said here is that these are intimidating. These are things that are not man-made. These are things that that have been unleashed. They have some sort of supernatural uh, appearance about them. So they are something other than what's on the earth. Okay, and so John is just trying to describe this vision that he has, and he's using the best thing that he can possibly do. Do they really have lions' heads? That's the best way he could describe it because he's never seen anything like this. All right, so he's just doing the best that he can. But I think the most important thing that we see here is that fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. That sulfur is an, and fire as well is an indication of the judgment of God. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, that, it, that God just rained down fire and sulfur onto this city. And it, I mean, it just basically was left in ashes. At this point. And so this is the judgment of God that's coming forth. And it says, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. God is orchestrating the death, by the judgment of death upon these unbelievers for what they have accomplished. And it says, for the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails. For the tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now again, a lot of this is hyperbolic like a third of mankind and those types of things. But the idea here is that you have all these unbelievers that have lived in this wonderful state of just hedonistic aloofness, right? They've just been living out their sin. They've been enjoying their sin. They've been dwelling in their sin for so long. And now God is answering the prayers of the saints as the, as the saints have said, God, oh, how long, how long, O oh Lord, are you going to be before you avenge the blood of our brothers and sisters, of those who have killed us, those who have maligned us, those who have persecuted us? And God says, now. And so the judgment that we're seeing is God raining down, and it's being rained down in a supernatural way that only God can. Now we're going to jump down to verses 20 through 21. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of their works, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. One of the things that we also need to realize is that up here, before we get into this passage, it just occurred to me that people are dying and going to hell right now. That this isn't something that's in the future. That people are dying and lost right now. You have an opportunity 
while God, God has blessed you with the opportunity of knowing His Son. You have the opportunity of repenting of your sin and, and turning to Christ. You have that opportunity. And if you reject that opportunity, if you reject Christ and you die while in your sin, contrary to Catholic doctrine, there is no purgatory, there is no intermediary, intermediate state, there is no praying you out of hell. Folks, you get this opportunity and this alone. This is it. And yet people are dying every day. Every day. And they are lost. Some of you have them in your family, have individuals in your family, friends, maybe children, maybe parents, whatever it might be. And they're lost. And still we often fail in sharing the gospel. That's all we've been called to do. We have not been called to save anybody. It is not on you. It is not on you. If you have a child that is not a believer, if you have a grandchild that is not a believer, it is not your responsibility to pull them out of hell. That's God's job. It is your responsibility to love them and to share the gospel. No matter how hard they fight, kick, scream, show themselves, make you feel bad, make you feel like you're stupid, make you feel like your faith is worthless, make you feel like you're just spinning your wheels and that you're backwards and that nothing that you do makes any difference at all. Because that's what unbelievers do. And we still share the gospel. We still show them the love of Christ. Don't ever apologize for being too Christian. Don't ever apologize for praying too much around your kids. Sharing the gospel too much around your kids. Don't ever apologize for playing Christian music around your kids. Don't ever apologize when a child is misbehaving or is living in sin. And instead of trying to share some sort of moral, worldly, virtuous statement... You just quote the words of God. Don't ever apologize for that. And when they look at you and they say, I'm sick of all of it. I'm sick of the Bible. I'm sick of those Christian people. They're all fake. They're all just too nice. None of it's real. Continue to pray for them to love them, and to continue to share the gospel with them. Don't try to moralize them out of hell. Because that's what we do at times, don't we? 
their entire children's ministry is built on morality. Don't do this, do this. Don't do this, do this. Because we want to train good behavior into our kids. Morals will not save you. Morals will not save you. Continue to share the gospel until they believe. And after they believe, reinforce the gospel. Just keep doing it. Somebody might say, well, aren't we just, we've been, te- we've been teaching the gospel over and over. Pastor, you keep preaching the gospel. Can we move on to something else? And I say, I will move on from the gospel when Jesus comes. That's when I'll move on the gospel. Because then the gospel will be physically present with us in the body of Christ as he, re- as he re- takes his people with him. That's when I'll stop preaching the gospel. Because it's not morals that are going to save our children. It's not morals that are going to save your coworker. It's not morals that are going to save anyone. It is only Christ and only Christ alone. You can tell your kids don't cuss. You can tell your kids don't steal. You can tell your kids not to hit their brothers and sisters. You can tell your kids to obey mom and dad. You can tell them all those things, and we should tell them all those things. But you also need to tell them, but none of those things are going to save you. None of them. When you take your kid or your grandkid into the grocery aisle and the teacher and you see the teacher in there because teachers do go to grocery stores they don't live at school right and the teacher comes up to you and they say your child is such an angel you can be sure of one thing that in their presence they obeyed all your morals that does not mean that they're saved and that goes for us as well We might be very, very moral people. Really, we might be really moral people. And we are lost because we don't know Christ. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of the hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which they cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is why I believe with all my heart that if Christ walked through these doors right now and it was evident, it was absolutely evident that it was Jesus and he said repent and believe that there would be unbelievers that would still hold, hold so tightly to their sin that they would refuse to repent and believe, even in the presence of Christ. There are some individuals that say, if we could only physically see Christ, then more people would come to Christ. And I say, absolutely not. And we have evidence of that because when Christ was here the first time, there were people that killed him on a cross. There would still be people that were so infatuated with their own sin that they still would not turn turn to Jesus. Because they just don't believe. They just don't believe. And that's what's happening here. These individuals are seeing the judgments being rained down upon them. And I guarantee you during this time, Christians are going up to them and saying, Listen, this just turn to Christ. Just turn to Christ. Pour yourself into Jesus. Pour yourself into Christ. 
Repent and believe. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be peachy. It doesn't mean that it's going to be absent of trouble. But it does mean that your future is secure. It means that if a boulder lands on your head, you don't have to worry about your eternal state. It means that you will rise and be with Christ. There is no place, no place that a Christian should rather be than with the body of Christ, worshiping Christ alone as often as we possibly can. We had a business meeting, and I'm getting ready to close. We had a business meeting, or a members meeting, if you will, because it's only a business meeting when there's fights. Um, so it was a members meeting, and it was, it was a very wonderful meeting. And um, as we were talking, I kind of laid out a little bit of a plan. Some of you over here, not all of you. I kind of laid out a plan on what I'd like to see happen over the next year to kind of get us you know, back in order, if you will, after this last two years. And I said, and I believe this, that um, in, a, in, an, in a time when it seems that churches are doing less and less and less, cutting out services, cutting out ministries, and the reason that's happening, a lot of it is because families are too busy. That's what's happening. I said, this is not the time for the church to do less. This is the time for the church to do more. This is the ch time for the church to be more active, not less active. And by the way, they will say, people will say, we are more active. Look at our online streaming. Look at our online presence. Folks, that's not real. Online is not real, okay? It's not. It's really deceptive is what it is. I looked the other day by accident, and it said, I have 750 friends on Facebook. Folks, not only do I not have 750 friends, I don't want 750 friends. Because I don't want to have to deal with 750 friends. It's enough for me to deal with the friends that I've got. The online world is not real. You know exactly what I mean. I'm not being mean. It's just the truth. The online world is not real. Churches don't need to be doing less so that we can do more online. That's just laziness. That's just apathy. We need to be more active. We need to be more involved in one another's lives. Because there are people that are dying and going to hell. They are seeing the judgments of God, yet they will not repent. And we need to be more active in sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel. And let me just tell you, I want you all to invite people to church. I'd love for every seat to be filled, and I'd, I'd love for us to have to move back over there. Okay, I, I would love for that to happen. But if you have an opportunity, to, you have one opportunity to invite somebody to church or to invite them to trust in Jesus. Do not invite them to church. Invite them to love and trust Jesus. We don't need to fill our church building with more individuals who are just apathetic about the things of Christ. We need to fill our church buildings with people who love and want to worship Jesus. Now still invite people to church. But share the love of Christ with them. And some days you won't feel like it. I'm going to be honest with you. 
is that this morning, and some of you all know this, if there could have been a Sunday morning where I bowed out of preaching, it would have been this morning. It would have been this morning. The thought raced across my mind. This morning's been a tough morning for me. Now, I don't say that so that I'll get a pat on the back for pushing through. That's not the point. The reason I say that is because it is way too easy in this life just to say, I don't feel like it. I'm just tired. I'm just exhausted. You know, I think I'm just not going to do it today. You know, I'm just tired of this Christian life. You know, I, I need a break from all the Christianity. So I, I'm not going to gather with the church right now. And, you know, I'm just going to kind of indulge myself. I'm going to focus on me for a little while, right? I'm going to take the next week, next two weeks, next month, next couple months, next six months, because that's exactly what happens. And I'm going to focus on me for a little while. And I'm going to indulge myself a little bit. That's what I'm going to do. Folks, that's not the life of a believer. The life of a believer is, is not even putting your nose to the grindstone. Is that the phrase? Did I get that right? It's not even that. It is setting your eyes on Christ. And it is plowing through. Because you know that Christ is worthy. Because Christ is exalted. And that Christ will sustain you. The time, the time for walking away from Christ or walking away from the church is not when things get difficult. That is the time where we cling to Christ. The people in Scripture, the lepers, the lame, the blind, the deaf, the prostitutes, those who were sick and bleeding, they did not run from Christ in their trouble. They ran to Christ and He healed them. We run to Christ and we cling to Christ at all times. There is never a moment in the Christian life where we say, I'm going to take a break. It doesn't exist. Our eyes are always fixed on Jesus. Always. Because there is a world that is dying. And the only thing that will save them is the good news of Jesus Christ. That Christ came for sinners. Because there is a hell. And there are so many people headed there. So many people headed there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. And I thank you for your word. And I thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. I thank you for all of it. And I thank you, Lord, that you allow us to press on. Not just that you allow us to press on, that you, that you enable us to press on and endure even when it's difficult. So, Father, I pray that you would be with me.
be with us. Father, your love is so deep for us. I pray that we can even come, that we would just, just have a smidgen of the love for you that you have for us. And if we did, man, things would change mightily. Father, I pray for our congregation. I pray for those who are lost. I pray for those who are not believers. I pray for those who are clinging to their sin like it's a shiny object and they just won't let go. I pray that you would give them the, the encouragement to have them let go and that you would tear them down and rebuild them in the image of Christ. Father, save unbelievers and give us strength to keep on. We love you and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.